experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp yet well within our reach welcome to larry rifkin's america trends where the future has arrived and it's just in time Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. Have you ever banged your head on the debt ceiling? Well, Uncle Sam is about to, unless President Biden capitulates to the Republican House majority and agrees to cuts to the federal budget. Yet the president says, pass a clean increase to the debt ceiling, not tied to budget cuts. And he got them to agree to no cuts to Social Security and Medicare during his call and respond exercise during the recent State of the Union address. It's all very complicated. And despite desires to the contrary, with both parties having fingerprints on the $31 trillion debt, something has to give. We'll discuss it today here on America Trend. With us on America Trends is Bob Bixby, the executive director of the Concord Coalition. And that's a nonpartisan organization that encourages fiscal responsibility in Washington, D.C., and helps educate the public about the federal budget and the need to protect our children and future generations from excessive government debt. And, Bob, we're a little behind the eight ball here. <laughs> We've got about $31.4 trillion already on the books. We've got a looming uh, debt ceiling crisis uh, in front of us. And yet this budget issue, which I don't think has gotten a lot of attention in the recent period because, well, Democrats and Republicans uh, don't seem to worry too much about it, but all of a sudden it's back in the news. I've got to believe from your standpoint, and the Concord Coalition, that that's an important thing. Well, yes, it is an important thing to be having a discussion. This is not a good discussion that we're having. It's more of a distraction. I mean, we're talking about the budget, but most of the attention is on the debt limit, which is kind of a silly mechanism to begin with, and ways around the debt limit. Get frustrated with the debate because we're talking about gimmicks to get around a gimmick. And how do we get through all this, this ticket? Republicans, it would seem, would not really want to raise this issue if, in fact, the perception among the public is that the economy is not in great shape, whether it is or it isn't. It's a rather uh, tremulous time, a rather confusing time. Six in ten blame President Joe Biden. But every time we've had these debt ceiling crises in the past, it has not inured to the benefit of those who are threatening uh, that they are going to take this uh, dramatic action. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, you have to think about the political calculus here, which is that they're trying to make a point about, this is Republicans I'm talking about, are trying to make a point that the budget is on a unsustainable track, which is true. But And so somehow or other, if the administration says that we need to raise the debt limit, which we do, 
and which is unrelated to this long-term structural budget issue, it makes it look like they're somehow being fiscally irresponsible by raising the debt ceiling. And so, you know, it's a political argument, but it didn't have much to do with the economy or the budget. I've been following this issue for many years. I used to be an adherent of David Walker, the Comptroller General, would go to his talks, have him on my radio program, Lawrence Kotlikoff from BU, and yet they were all screaming in the wind, and it just continued this debt that we have in America to spiral. And why is it that we are at this point? How did we get to a point where people suggest, many on the left, that, in fact, we are the most penurious of all the industrialized countries. We don't have great benefits. We don't have daycare that's provided. We have, um, you know, no government to run health care per se. So why is it that we are in this situation, uh, a very precarious one, $31.4 trillion in the hole? I think it's because we really don't have realistic discussions about our fiscal policy, as we're seeing now. You know. The budget has an underlying structural deficit. And by that, I mean that most of the spending is on autopilot and it's for big major programs like Social Security or Medicare, Medicaid, and they're driven by demographics and health care costs. So as the population gets older and consumes more health care and consumes more retirement benefits, the federal budget gets more and more expensive, particularly with my generation, the baby boomers retiring. So programs that are very popular and very important, like Social Security and Medicare, are increasing on on autopilot. And we don't go back and, and say, well, do we need more revenue to pay for this? In fact, Congress has a propensity for cutting taxes. We're not dealing with what's actually driving the deficit. Now, you throw in you know, net interest cost on servicing the debt, that tends to grow too when you're running deficits. Till we have a debate about the costs of the budget that are rising on autopilot and the tax part of it, we're not really seriously going to address this problem. And we're just going to see increasing deficits and increasing debt, which is why having a, a debate about the debt ceiling without addressing these underlying causes is silly. It's interesting. I interviewed Stephanie Kelton about a year and a half ago, and she is the major proponent of modern monetary theory. The whole idea that because we are a sovereign and we can print money when we want, uh, that in fact we really don't have a problem and that the debt is not a problem. Now, I know that there are many economists who disagree with her about this. This is Keynesian on steroids, I guess many would say. But having said that, Bob, in effect, Isn't that the way we operate? Because during the pandemic, when we added, I don't know, five trillion, seven trillion to the debt, did anybody say, whoa, wait a minute, how are we going to get this back? What are we going to have to do after uh, the printing presses and the uh, bottom of the Treasury are churning out all this money? I didn't hear anybody talk about that. No, and you don't in an emergency. I mean, I would say with a virus spreading all over the country and people dying and there was no vaccine and there was no really cure for it, you go all out. You do what you have to do. And you don't worry about the budget deficit and the debt at that point. And that's what we did on a bipartisan basis. It did run up a, you know, it did run up the debt in a, in a big way. That's what you want to spend 
that if you want to go into deficit, that's the time to do it. <laughs> uh, what I worry about is when you're running up big debts and you're not facing some sort of huge emergency like a pandemic, which is what we're doing, by the way. The, the, the deficit was over a trillion dollars before the pandemic hit was projected to get higher pandemic hit and it just went you know haywire the deficit went way up shooting way up for a couple of years it's come down a bit for for now but it's still over a trillion dollars it's just gotten back to that trillion dollar point where we were as far as the modern monetary theory is concerned i think that uh that we did actually have an experiment in that during the pandemic because we were just printing money basically and what happened we ended up with the biggest, uh, the, the largest inflation in 40 years. I mean, there are a lot of people in this country that had never experienced an inflation surge. I'm old enough to remember <laughs> the, the 70s and, uh, and the 80s and what inflation was like. That was a natural cause of this. So if you had monetary, modern monetary theory in practice all the time, we'd have surging inflation, raging inflation. And this pandemic experience has demonstrated that. Now, the MMT folks will say, well, you can deal, Congress can deal with that by simply raising taxes and mm-hmm. taking some of that money out of the economy. Sure, I can win the scoring title in the NBA next year. I mean, Congress is not going to come along and raise taxes in a recession to cure inflation. I mean, it's it politically doesn't make any sense. So I don't think we'll hear as much about modern monetary theory in the next uh, few years as we did pre-pandemic. But the Inflation Reduction Act, in effect, where the Republicans are now saying you just want to grow the IRS and Democrats are saying, no, first of all, we have to sustain the IRS unless we're going to do a 30 percent sales tax with many in the Republican Party have been uh, talking about. But that, in fact, uh, as it relates to uh, trying to raise more in taxes, that there are so many people who are not really paying in to their federal share. Many corporations, of course, and then individuals of high net worth. Many on the bottom aren't paying as well. So the people who I talk to in the middle often feel like, wow, we're paying too much in federal taxes. But maybe it's that that spread is not wide enough across all Americans. Well, I think that that uh, provision in the inflation Reduction Act uh, is very important. The, the low-hanging fruit of all the ways to, to bring in more revenue is to do a better job of collecting the revenue that's already owed. You know, the IRS has been starved for resources over the past several years, and, you know, trying to provide them with the tools that they need to do a better job of collecting revenue is uh, is important. I personally don't think it's going to bring in quite as much as was projected because, you know, rooting out these things is very difficult. You know, a lot of it is underreporting of uh, self-earned income. Uh, it's hard to root that stuff out. But but some of the tax avoidance, tax evasion, <laughs> I think I think I think you have to do something like that before you say you're going to raise taxes because first do a better job of collecting the taxes that we already have. So I think that that's a good provision, and uh, I hope it bears fruit. The whole idea of a balanced budget blueprint over the next decade, according to Douglas Holtz Eakin, who used to run the Congressional Budget Office, you'd have to cut about $7 trillion in spending. That means you'd have to make substantial cuts to things people care about. Now, again, this is if we don't raise taxes or 
try to get more taxes from those who already owe it. About three trillion to come out of Social Security, two trillion to come out of Medicare and take a trillion out of Medicaid. How? I mean, it doesn't seem realistic. We know that Social Security has problems. Uh, they have dedicated funds. You have to increase the payroll tax or you have to raise the age when people are uh, retiring out. And yet we've got the final leg of the baby boomers going through now. I mean, it's a very complicated balance. I know we have a representative here in Connecticut, John Larson, who has had a number of different ideas. So when do we get about that business? Because I know when Kevin McCarthy keeps talking about waste, fraud, and abuse, as I think you have said in your blog, I mean, there's no line item for that. <laughs> so where do you find it? That's the thing that always gets me about these debates is people don't want to confront the hard choices on popular programs. But as you point out, most of the budget, uh, you know, over 50 percent, you're talking if you took a look at Social Security, Medicare, defense, interest on the debt, veterans programs, you're up over 60 percent of the budget. So to talk about balancing the budget when we're so far out of balance and putting all those things off the table, you just, you know, that's a totally, it's like somebody telling you they're going on a diet to lose 50 pounds and they're going to give up carrot sticks. It just, you know, the math doesn't work. Politically, that's what the politicians want to say because they want to, they want to talk about conflicting goals that are incompatible. <laughs> but, uh, like we want to balance the budget. Well, we're not going to touch Social Security, Medicare, uh, defense or interest on the debt. What are you going to cut? So, I mean, I think it's a very appropriate thing to ask the Republicans to put out a budget that shows how they would do this, how you would balance the budget over 10 years. I've been a balanced budget advocate for 31 years with the Concord Coalition, but it is not a practical goal at this point. So, you know. People shouldn't be, particularly if you're going to say taxes are off the table and we're going to do it all on the spending side. Look, waste is there, but, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's often a subjective thing. You talk to people out west and they'll say that everything we like to spend in the, in the, uh, <laughs> Washington, uh, Boston corridor on Amtrak subsidies is a total waste. And you can talk to other people in the east that would say, why are we paying farmers to do nothing? That's a total waste. So when you get into waste, it can become a very subjective thing. We're not going to, we're not going to balance. If people want to cut foreign aid, okay, have a ball, eliminate <laughs> foreign aid. It's not going to do anything. It's like 1% of the budget. I mean, so until we have a more realistic discussion about the contours of the budget and what's growing and why the entitlement programs are growing. Why are they growing? Because the population is aging and healthcare gets more expensive. So we need to have a conversation about that. Do we need revenue? Do we need to find a way to more efficiently provide health care? Yes, we do. Those are the discussions we should be having, which just as for the about the third time in the show, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but that's why this whole debate about the debt limit is insane. The last serious man in Congress, I think, to want to deal with this. Though I'm not certain if his ideas uh, really hold water. You can help me understand that was perhaps uh, Speaker Ryan. I mean, he really did want to tackle some of these issues. And there have been Democrats in the past as well. Both parties have brought us to this precipice. Uh, Half of the deficit, I believe, is to fund tax cuts. The other half for spending increases. 
we didn't pay for the Iraq war. I think that was three trillion dollars. Uh, Democrats now say, you know, it's the Republicans who are so profligate. They always leave us with an incredible mess to have to clean up and then try to get us to raise taxes and blame it on us. So with this blame game going on, I mean, how do we get out of this? And what role does an organization like yours? I mean, there's Third Way. There are many organizations. There's the Problem Solvers Caucus. Do you guys get together and say, look, we have really got to uh, promote these ideas aggressively and quickly uh, to get some serious uh, heads around these problems because they are only daily getting worse? Well, I think the important role for groups like the Concord Coalition and, and others that you mentioned is a, to keep pounding the facts on, w- on what the budget is. So when somebody says we're going to cut the Defense Department by, uh, you know, eliminating spending on wokeness, it's incumbent upon us to say that, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, just like there's no line item in the budget for waste, there's no line item in the Pentagon budget for wokeness. So I think we have to keep that. That's really fundamental because if people don't understand the basic facts about the federal budget, there's no reason why they would want to make hard choices. If you think there's a free lunch, why the heck would you want to make a, uh, you know, hard choices about things that you like? You don't want Medicare cut. You don't want Social Security cut. And when we talk about cuts, it's, 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 you know, it's reducing future growth and people don't want to pay more in taxes or they want to have somebody else pay more in taxes. I, so I really think that just telling people, he, reinforcing here are the basic facts. What do you want to do about them? Democrats and Republicans are going to have differences of opinion based on what they think the best role is for the federal government. And that's, that's the great, that's the great political debate that, that we should be having about these things. How do you get that to come about? You know, we, we used to have much better, better informed debates about these things all throughout the, the Clinton years and then the Bush years and early in the Obama years. There were, you know, there were commissions and there were, proposals and uh, there were a lot of these bipartisan gangs and whatever that were working on these things. And, you know, for a while, the budget was actually balanced. We, we were running surpluses for a few years. You know, in the Obama administration, there were a couple of opportunities, the Simpson-Bowles Commission being one of them, where there were opportunities for a, a bipartisan fix to all those. Unfortunately, they fell apart. Since then, it's just been a long descent. It's almost like, you know, we got close to the top of the mountain and then fell down. And nobody wants to try it again. It's just easier to go into the partisan corners and throw mud at one another. And that's that's kind of where we are now. Where we get out of that, it's going to take some leadership uh, from some bipartisan group. And groups like the Concord Coalition, you know, we don't have a vote. So, I mean, we can advocate, we can we can educate, but it really ultimately is going to take some leadership from people who have a vote in Congress or a, uh, a president. And right now, that hasn't been a top priority for people. Bob Bixby is with us. He is the executive director of the Concord Coalition, a nonpartisan organization that encourages fiscal responsibility. It came about because there were senators on both sides of the aisle who put it together, Paul Songus and Warren Rudman, many years back. What about the notion of going back to the regular appropriations process? Some say that really has been side-winded with omnibus spending bills. But is process part of this, or is that just a smokescreen as well? No, I think uh, I think it could be part of it because you are talking about 
wheel money uh, and something that has to be done every year. And I am a big advocate of going back to regular budget. It's called regular order. <laughs> and we haven't been doing regular order for so long. It's it's kind of like regular chaos that we have now. This is this is a symptom of where we are. Democrats and Republicans simply won't even even negotiate on on the budget. Now, you can say, you know, well, we can't negotiate on the debt limit. We need to pay our bills. You do have to negotiate on the appropriations bills because every year Congress needs to fund the, the government. These are the 12 annual appropriation bills. And, you know, really, they're supposed to go through each house and then they're supposed to negotiate between the two. And then they sell it, send the bills to the president and he signs them or vetoes them. But the reason that we have these omnibus bills is because there are not, there's no action that takes place on the appropriation bills during the course of the year. Democrats and Republicans simply say, we're not gonna, we're not even gonna negotiate on these things, that we're just gonna do our, go our own way. So nothing gets passed. You get up to the end of the year, which is September 30th, the end of the fiscal year. Nothing has happened. The government's about to run out of money. So they have to pass these so-called omnibus bills or a continuing resolution is another way they're doing it. It's a terrible way to do business, and we're kind of stuck in that mode. So, yeah, go back to the regular process. But even that, the reason that's not going to work is that they, there's a, it's just an unwillingness to make basic compromises with each other. So what do we have to do? With Social Security and Medicare not being off the table, because they can't be, or even defense spending. Ironically, I think some of those who don't want to spend on certain things in defense are Republicans lately, like Ukraine, some people saying we should pull back in that area. Some also suggesting the pandemic's over, though the president does not want to acknowledge that until May of this year. The Republicans would like to stop the extra appropriations on that uh, now. I mean, is there a ground here? that we can find some middle purpose. And if, in fact, this deficit that we have and debt in many ways is contributed to by both tax cuts and spending cuts, is there something that says we've got to split this baby in some way and find both revenue enhancers and revenue reductions? I mean, what do we have to do here is what I'm asking, because it's just so frustrating to those of us on the outside who say, come on, folks, get in a room and deal with this. Yeah, I think that there is some room for common ground if we can stop the theatrics. Starting first with the appropriations, uh, you're right. We can look at uh, at what was spent on COVID, what uh, is no longer needed, and then let's, let's end that. There is uh, certainly the possibility to go through some overspending in the Pentagon budget. It's notoriously a, uh, <laughs> a budget that, uh, you know, can't, the government accountability office can't even audit the Pentagon's books. So sure. And I think that, uh, you know, there, there is some common ground there as when you get into programs like Medicare and Social Security, there's a, a bill being uh, introduced by uh, Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin in the Senate that uh, is called the Trust Act. And it uh, would appoint various uh, commissions or actually congressional committees, subcommittees, to look at, quote unquote, rescue plans for each of our major trust programs, Social Security being one, Medicare being another, and uh, a highway trust fund. There are these government trust funds. 
and they each are facing insolvency within a few years. And uh, this is this is, would appoint a bipartisan uh, committees that would uh, whose task would be to come up with ways to extend their solvency. It doesn't doesn't dictate any particular route. It doesn't say you have to do any particular thing. It just says we, we need to address this. So let's get about doing it. I think that that's a very good bill that might play a role in uh, later in the year when people start thinking about what we actually need to do. And I think we have to look at the tax code and acknowledge that it's not keeping up with modern times in, in terms of bringing in enough revenue to, to cover the bills that the country seems to want to pay. And I think that there's a lot of room in the tax code where you can go after. There is such a thing as waste in the tax code. There are a lot of subsidies. They're called tax expenditures, and they're basically you know, tax breaks, special rates, uh, credits, deductions, exclusions, you go through there and you can find a lot of things that uh, would bring in more revenue without raising rates. Uh, so there there really are some things that we could work on. I don't think it's going to be some big grand bargain like we were talking about with Simpson Bowles in 2010. But if you get some individual members of Congress on a bipartisan level to start focusing some attention on these problems that we know are coming, like the insolvency of Social Security, I think we could make some progress. It's unfortunate that these tax expenditures that you talk about have been put in there very um, consciously by different interest groups. And, of course, we've got all the lobbyists hovering around Congress. We've got a Congress that is more performative than performing their tasks. And we've got, as you say, these entitlements that are almost off budget and just keep growing. When you saw the 8.7%, uh, cost of living adjustment in uh, Social Security this year. Uh, now, many of us felt it was necessary, those who are on it, uh, but how difficult is it for us to keep doing that and even changing some of the formulas that we have or looking at Social Security and the out years? Some people are, again, talking about privatizing it. Do you see any chance that any of those ideas are really going to get any traction when at the same time you have Senator Tuberville, a very conservative Republican in Alabama, saying you cannot touch Medicare and even Donald Trump saying, hey, Republicans don't touch Medicare and Social Security. Well, the the thing with uh, Medicare Part A, which is the hospital insurance fund and uh, Social Security is if you don't touch them, they will become insolvent. What happens then is that the benefits need to be cut and the hospital reinsurance needs uh, repayments need to be cut. Mm. And that happens for Social Security in about 10 years and for Medicare even sooner uh, within the next 10 years. So, the you know, people 30 years ago might have said, oh, leave them alone, you know, don't touch them. Talking about don't touching, don't touch them now is, you know, like, you know, watching a, a patient with a, with a, you know, healthcare problem and saying, oh, don't touch them. They'll be better. You know, we, every year the trustees report that Social Security is, you know, is going to become insolvent. And so we have to do something. That, that's not attacking the program. That's not, that's trying to save the program. And that, that doesn't mean you have to do it any particular way. I think that it's inevitably, let's just take Social Security, inevitably, it's going to take some increase in the payroll tax. It, that's the most popular, or, or you know, not not necessarily the rate, but increase the cap 
so that uh, wealthier people, as you go up the income scale, the cap is uh, extended, and so you bring in more money from higher income people. I think that's going to be part of it. I think raising the eligibility age is probably going to be part of it. And there might be some tweaks around the benefit formula so that it's, you know, more income oriented. I don't want to say means tested because that sounds like it cuts off, but you know, you can make the, the benefit formula more progressive. Uh, I think there are things that are going to inevitably have to happen. And that's not attacking the program. It's trying to extend its solvency. With Medicare, we need, really need to be, do a better job of providing health care more efficiently. And there is plenty of waste. I mean, there, <laughs> the Medicare Advantage program, we don't have time to go into the details here, but the, uh, there's a reason why Medicare so-called Part C, the Medicare Advantage program, is really, really popular with seniors. It's because it's, uh, it, it gives a lot of benefits and, and the government is just overpaying these plans. When we do look at it in closing, uh, let's assume we get through this debt uh, limit uh, a crisis uh, somehow, because we have to. I mean, you can, if you'd like, uh, invoke what will happen if we don't. I mean, that's important, just to remind people how serious that conversation is. But as we get closer to the 2024 election, and there seems to be no constituency for austerity in either party today. Are, are you hopeful about the near or long-term future as you study this and you work on this problem every day? And still, we don't see a lot of progress. In fact, we see ourselves in a very precarious uh, moment uh, in this uh, debate. Well, first on the debt limit, uh, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand it because they think because it's called the debt limit, it has something to do with fiscal responsibility, and it doesn't. It, it, it is an arbitrary number. It has no budgetary connection or it's not like some budget, some limit that we thought of because it was enforcing some budget plan. It has no economic significance. It's not tied to the debt as a percentage of the economy in any way. So it's just an arbitrary number. What it means is if you get to the debt limit, you don't raise it. It means that we're not paying our bills. It doesn't mean anything about future spending. It just means we're refusing to to pay the bills for programs. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Congress has already authorized and, you know, Congress sets the spending and the revenue. And when it results in a deficit, Treasury has to borrow to make up the difference. And so when you come along and, and put a debt limit in, it says, well, now we're going to say we're not going to pay the bills that we authorized. I, I sometimes use this hypothetical. If somebody owed you money and they sent you a note and said, uh, hi there, in the interest of fiscal responsibility, I'm not going to pay you. You probably wouldn't describe that behavior as being fiscally responsible. So, I mean, I think that we just, you know, we need to suck it up, <laughs> raise the debt limit and fixing the policies that are producing so much debt in the first place. Uh, as far as optimism, I have to be a little bit optimistic uh, or I'd go crazy. Uh, you know, I do think that there are solutions to these things. It's not rocket science. Uh, it's just that we have to do a better job of being able to listen to one another and, and uh, to compromise. And I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe younger generations will be better at that than, uh, than my generation has proven to be. You know, I hope it doesn't take a crisis. It might. But uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that some new leadership will come forward where maybe going back to the days of trying to, to compromise and listen to one another will suddenly become cool again because it's new. Just one other question. If we're at $31.4 now, a number perhaps that we never thought we'd get to, I think under the Trump administration, 
it grew by 25%. So the question is, when it's the size of GDP, what does that mean? What pressure does that put on a country like ours, which is really the economic force in the world, the secondary currency, and that holds so many opportunities for us and so many uh, options that other countries don't have. So tell us how tremulous that is. Well, of course, a little bit of that uh, d- does depend on raising the debt limit because of the, we could forfeit a lot of those things if we decided to not raise the debt limit and then we would default on our bills. They would be delayed. They might not be canceled. It's not at, you know, like we're bankrupt. We have every ability to pay these bills. But if the world's largest uh, economy and the, you know, reserve currency, the dollar, if we just decide to say to people, hey, you know, we're not going to pay all of our bills, that would put in jeopardy our economy uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, rational, smooth functioning of, of world markets. We would end up paying more. Uh, to finance our debt because people would, would naturally want a little bit of a risk premium because they don't know if they're going to get paid. But the other thing is you talked about, um, you know, what does the debt mean for the economy? There's no magic tipping point. It's not like I, I wish we could say, you know, if you get at a certain point, you know, 110 percent of GDP and everything falls apart. It's not that way. So we're running this, I, I think, sort of risky experiment. It's kind of like how high can we go? I do worry uh, that it's like the frog in the, the boiling water experiment. And the, it's it's the future of, of uh, you know, today's young people that's at risk because we baby boomers are just saying, yeah, well, this, sounds, this, this feels great. We can have all these trillion-dollar deficits and see. That's not doing us any harm. So light another cigarette. I think that the the consequences are tend to be slow-moving and insidious and will just result in a slower growing economy uh, in the future. And that's, you know, maybe that's not a crisis, but that's a problem. Bob Bixby, Executive Director, the Concord Coalition. If people want to reach out to you, read a lot of what it is that you're writing. And by the way, I love your blogs. They really are entertaining, but also very enlightening. How can people get more information from your organization? Well, they can go on our website, which is uh, ConcordCoalition.org. And Concord is like the grape and not like the airplane, C-O-N-C-O-R-D, Coalition.org. Thank you very much, Bob, for being with us today here on America Trends. Thank you, Larry.